0: Hello and welcome to the HSJ Weekly Health Check podcast. My name is Ben Clover. I'm one of the Bureau Chiefs at HSJ. And I'm joined by two of our correspondents here today, uh, James Ullman, who specialises in performance, and Annabelle Collins, who specialises in workforce. Uh, And that's a particularly uh, potent combination this week, uh, as we've seen the release of a quite significant letter as the service heads into uh, what's shaping up to be a particularly difficult winter, and one in the shadow of a general election. Uh, since our last podcast, the, the campaign has been officially started. Perda has begun. Uh, but this letter went out on Tuesday uh, and has some quite interesting developments uh, on the not-at-all-abstract uh, problem of pensions, uh, pensions for doctors, uh, specifically. Annabelle, what does what does the letter? Uh, oh, I should sp- specify. The letter is from Pauline Phillip, who's sort of the performance czar for the NHS provider sector. The person who who kind of gives trusts their 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 marching orders on uh, what to do and how to do it, and sort of monitors their performance. But but anyway, yeah. What does what does the letter say about pensions for doctors?
1: So I think the letter is incredibly clear about the seriousness of the um, doctor's pensions crisis. Um, it describes it as um, the most significant shared challenge um, relating to workforce availability. Um, it does it does say nursing is a big part of this, but it also says the continuing impact of pensions taxes on doctors. And this is this has been a long running problem. Um, HSJ reported almost um, exactly a year ago um, that over the last three years, a quarter of a million NHS staff have opted out of the pension scheme over the last over the last three years. Um, so it shouldn't be a surprise as this has been brewing for a while. The BMA have been incredibly vocal as have the HCSA about the impact on clinicians and therefore the impact on trusts, service delivery and patients, and of course, patient safety. Um, and just to perhaps dial it back a bit, as this is a really complicated um, issue. So um, we know that um, we know that this has been a problem for a while. Um, and in August, um, the government announced that it was going to act to int- introduce pensions changes um, to enable senior clinicians to take on extra clinical activities without incurring the um, huge pensions tax bills. Um, and this was this was to do with tapering of the annual allowance and I won't go into that as I'm not a, a pensions accountant but um essentially once you hit a, a particular um threshold um income uh the amount of um, annual allowance um you're allowed tapers right down from 40,000 so um the government said in august quite interestingly that it is going to look at the taper um which is quite a U-turn as when the first consultation was launched in June, they didn't really mention the taper. Um, So this letter talks about some of the um, flexibilities that they're expecting trusts to use um, to mitigate the impact of the pensions crisis on service delivery. Um, Just to briefly touch on some of those flexibilities, um, employers have a number of options. So they can offer um, clinicians time off in lieu instead of pay. But then again, what is going to be the impact on service delivery of giving doctors days off in the most pressurized um, bit of the year? That's something to think about. Um, There are a few other things that they can do. So um, you can split a full-time contract into part-time contracts. Um, So this can help employees reduce the value of their pension benefits that they build up. Um, there's also opting out and opting back in again. Um, this is referred as the referred to as the hokey pokey, um, <laughs> much less fun. Um, and um, employers can also um, basically determine what sort of pay is pensionable. Um, this depends on the nature and duration of the payment. Um, another thing that some trusts are doing, and um, we published a story quite re- quite recently about a trust in Northumbria, is um, creating a limited liability partnership um, specifically for the completion of extra activities.
0: Right, oh, that was what that was for. Because Northumbria yeah. are often doing, um, let's call it, innovative stuff. Uh,
1: well, they're not the only. They're not the only ones. I think quite a few trusts have had to resort to this because of the doctors simply saying we're not going to we're not going to take on any extra programmed activities because they're so concerned about the huge tax bills they'll be faced with.
0: And now Pauline Philip has pretty much mandated trusts take steps like this to do this. Mm. And, and oh sorry. Sorry, on. no,
1: just to add on the LLP thing, that isn't something that's really endorsed by the DH or NHS England. That's not their that's not their preferred option as their preferred fix for this, so to speak.
0: That's uh, it's interesting. And, and presumably that's because Pauline Philip, who has a sort of operations room monitoring the pressures on trusts up and down the country. I said, look, we need to take this this action now. I mean, can mm. you give us an idea of? Um, I'm sure people, if you if we have listeners in trusts, you'll you'll be familiar with the sort of effects that that the uh, the pensions crisis has had on the on the medical workforce. But can you can you take us through some of the actual practical effects that's had? Absolutely.
1: So, so um, we saw reported just this week that um, St. Guys and Thomas's. Um, hospital in central london closed an intensive care ward for i think it was about 18 weeks um we're seeing um we're we're, we're hearing trust reporting there's been a huge dent on waiting lists um as the consultants simply aren't there to see the patients um i think there's um there are also concerns about you know, particularly in A&E, and we've we've had the president of the Royal College of Emergency Med- Medicine um, just a few weeks ago warning that there are severe rotor gaps at senior level due to the pensions crisis, and that obviously affects emergency medicine consultants as well. And in the winter, um, we certainly don't want to be short of emergency medicine consultants.
0: No, this is, this is the coming up for the most pressured time when you need senior staff to to actually to to reduce the number of admissions. The more senior staff you have, the the more confident they tend to be in not admitting people when when beds are particularly short. I mean, that does bring us to beds because Pauline Philip also mentioned uh, that we need to be opening more beds. The acute sector in England needs to be opening more beds. I mean, James James is a performance (coughs) correspondent. Uh, How new is this?
2: So Simon Stevens said last month that he wanted the system to open more beds this winter. Um, that followed a a comment again by Mr. Stevens in June that that the system would need more beds over the next five years than, um, than it has at present. That's a huge change in tact from the last decade or so where we've seen the NHS trying to cut its bed base. Every winter, though, Trusts try and open as many beds as they can, so-called escalation beds and um, extra wards. So it's it, it's it's a slight change in approach from previous winters, but certainly during winter you're trying to maximise the amount of capacity you've got. Uh, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine estimates this winter that the system is between 4,000 and 6,000 beds short. That's on a Overall bed base of, uh, in terms of hospital beds, at least for around 103,000. So, um, so yeah, there's there's considerable shortages, and this idea that um, the uh, the system should be opening more beds uh, is is going to be contentious because trusts will already be thinking, well, we've opened all the capacity we've got. Uh, if you've got the physical capacity, you also need the staffing capacity as well. So uh, it, it, it will not be easy for trusts to find either the physical capacity or the staffing capacity to uh, um, open up more beds.
0: So basically in each trust in the land, that, that difference between beds we need and beds we have is potentially someone being treated in a corridor. On yeah, Kind of like we've seen quite a large growth in in trolley weights or Indeed. those statistics. Indeed,
2: so um, I think one of our chems, uh, sorry, the Royal College of Emergency Medicine's big push uh, is around overcrowding in A&Es and trolley weights specifically. Uh, and we've seen, yeah, the numbers of trolley weights rocket. And this is because there are just quite simply aren't enough beds in the system.
0: I wonder if kind of the, the advent of all year winter, you know, normally any performance recovers in the summer and people feel like they've got a bit of breathing space. But that, that has, hasn't happened over, is it just the past year or the past
2: couple of so years? So we've been heading in a downward direction for the last few years. I mean, you could use July 2015 as a a good date because that's when the four hour target uh, was was last hit, the four hour accident and emergency target. So trusts heading into this winter are doing so off the back of the worst summer performance against four hour target ever. Uh, that's um, since records began in 2004. So just 85.4% of patients were seen within four hours in September. That's the last month on record. Uh, this is already worse than previous winter months and um, nearly four percentage points down on uh, the same time in 2018, last year. We're expecting the next set of uh, performance data to come out on Thursday, so um, next Thursday. And again, we're expecting the uh, performance to have dropped even further. So why is all that happening? Well, um, one of the major reasons uh, is the sharp increase in demand. There were 529,903 emergency emissions in September. Uh, That's 3.8% higher than the same month last year. And Emergency admissions growth over the last three months is 3.6% and 4.9% over the last 12 months. So, you know, um, rising demand, not enough capacity. Um, the only uh, outcome to that is that performance is going to dip. And we, we heard about the, um, the issue of um, uh, the pensions crisis, and that's just exacerbated what was already uh, a very fragile system.
0: And it sounds like it's important to point out that kind of the the urgent care system is treating more people within the time limit than, than previously, yep. but the demand is such uh, that it's the performance overall is kind of so. So the proportion of people being treated within that time uh, is is falling. Precisely, uh, and why is that? Lack of staff, Precisely. lack of staff, lack of beds, yeah, uh, lack of integration. The
2: the um, the fact that they are treating more patients within four hours uh, is a great reflection on the work being done uh, across the NHS. But yeah, it's a a supply demand deficit.
0: Yeah, Um and Annabelle I believe from your from your local patch, we've got. Is, is this the first? Um first critical incident on in these in these terms that we've seen this winter? Yeah,
1: I believe so. Um so that's Nottingham University Hospitals Trust. Um yesterday morning declared a critical incident. And that isn't to say they're the only trust in the country under pressure. I've seen numerous trusts um declaring black alert, um, now known as Opal Four. Um, as I'm sure listeners know, the the highest alert um, going up from one to four. A critical incident is taking it further, um, it's kind of getting getting in um, system partners um, to try and ease the pressure. Um, we were sort of seeing reports um, on social media that the trust had an extremely high number of people, um, I think close to 200 people in the mm. ED with numerous ambulances arriving in a space of 15 minutes. And um, this is just the start of November. Um, although I think with this trust, um, they were also experiencing very high pressure in July. Um, they were they were declaring a black black alerts in July, which is quite unusual for an area of the country that isn't a, a big tourist destination. So we might expect that from Cornwall, and and indeed we did see that in Cornwall, but not so much in Nottingham.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's interesting, and it's kind of and it's important to know like Nottingham University Hospitals Trust. It's not a this is not a small DGH. This is kind of a giant workhorse mm. trust for a, for a whole. A whole region, mm. um, anyway. Kind of the performance, of the the performance of the acute sector. Uh, how we measure it is something that's also uh, come up in the news terms quite recently. Because because we're changing all these terms, aren't we? James? Kind of like there's a, well, there's a big review of it going on.
2: Yeah. So the uh, clinical standards review, which is the review of all um, and the NHS's core constitutional statutory targets. Was actually it was actually kicked off by Theresa May, but uh, when she was Prime Minister, which just feels like a different age. But uh, there you have it. This is it, four months ago. Indeed, <laughs> <laughs> indeed. It, it uh, so she sorry. The review published its latest kind of progress report last week, and the main thing we're going to focus on today is the four-hour target because that's the NHS's most important. Uh, performance. Although the review is metrics. also going to look at like the review is looking... and cancer waiting exactly. times, Exactly.
0: But A and E has soaked up a lot of the attention because like you say it is the main the main bellwether of how well a system exactly. is functioning.
2: And um it it also it, it, things like bed occupancy targets are predicated on four-hour target being hit so a a lot kind of flows from it Uh, and the the four-hour target I mean it's important just to kind of step back a minute and say well what has the four-hour target achieved well it's achieved a hell of a lot since its introduction in the 2004 kind of played a huge role in cutting waiting times during the noughties and uh, the early part of this decade uh, from the dark days in the 90s where kind of weights were sometimes measured in days rather than hours. So um, we all have a lot to be thankful for, for the creation of the four-hour target. Uh, So why the system leaders want to replace it if it's so great? Well, like any target, it's not perfect. Far, far from it. Uh, Among sort of the uh, the issues raised about it is it drives some perverse behaviors with um, perhaps the most pronounced being the, uh, the huge spike in patients you see dealt with at kind of three hours, 55 minutes, just sort of before the four hour deadline, which suggests, you know, uh, some patients being dealt with because of the target rather than clinical need. Uh, now, There's also the issue, as previously mentioned, that it hasn't been hit since July 2015, and it's kind of hard to get away from the fact that this appears to be a major incentive, uh, a major reason why system leaders and politicians would like to see it gone, because it, it sort of causes great embarrassment every month when it comes out, it's another month, they haven't hit the target, things are getting worse, etc., etc. Doesn't look good. Um, of course, no one would say that the official line is, this is all about clinical outcomes and delivering uh, uh, better services for patients, but, but that's certainly the elephant in the room for uh, NHS England. Uh, so sh- should it be scrapped? D- the should it be scrapped depends entirely on what it is replaced with. So if the review group can demonstrate that they've got this uh, metric which delivers better clinical outcomes and, and they can uh, demonstrate that robustly, then yeah, perhaps the day has come where the four-hour target was a thank you for your service, goodbye. But, um, you know, this is a huge challenge there has been quite a, a a lot of work done previously on on replacing it and and this has failed so this does feel different to previous efforts to replace the four-hour target in that the, there's just kind of more political and clinical enthusiasm uh for reform this time around but um uh, as I say, this the the review group has to demonstrate that that it really has something that's better for patients.
0: And they and they're testing it at twelve or fourteen a, a, different trusts, a, a 14, um, pilot which, fourteen pilot sites, fourteen pilot sites. And and what they're proposing to, well, what they're testing is is the is, the, is a mean patient that's time. So you take that, everyone who attends. Uh, and you, I mean, I, I remember reading one one uh, potential problem with that would be it could sort of disguise some extremely long waits. If you kind of go, if the if the overall performance is if you're whipping through a lot of patients quite quickly, the eight people who've waited what you might consider an unacceptably long amount of time are sort of hidden in a in, in a mean performance. The uh,
2: the 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 average mean time uh, is the main. Metric that they're trying, but they're also trying these um, uh, shorter targets for the most critically ill patients, uh, and and a couple of others. So it, it wouldn't just be mean, but mean would be the sort of cornerstone of of any new um, system. So the they've they've tested this and they've actually found that patients were waiting longer overall. And you think, oh well, that's a bad thing. But um, uh, they, the latest report suggested that actually there's been less admissions and the admitted patients were, well, waiting slightly less Less, um, so their um, their weights had fallen by about three minutes to uh, five hours and twelve minutes following the removal of the, the the kind of four hour cliff edge. So the review would suggest that this is a positive development. But the overall verdict from independent experts and indeed review leaders themselves is it's it's too early to make a judgment. Uh, John Appleby, who's the chief economist at the Nuffield Trust, told me that the uh, the central problem is that if you have some people being better off and some people who are being worse off under a new system, and, and that's what the data suggests so far, um, how do you reach a decision about whether it's a good idea to change the system? Uh, and they've never really set out what the criteria is for this. Um, now, this may be that um, they haven't really worked it out yet and, and, and that is happening as part of the process. But um, I, I think the, the kind of lack of transparency around this process, the lack of transparency around the criteria, um, really is pretty concerning. Uh, there's, there's also it's a, a review that's been carried out at breakneck speed. Frankly, they they want to be rolling out new uh, new metrics from April. Um, but they only want to make final recommendations in March, which doesn't seem to give any time for any meaningful consultation. Now, NHS England has pledged to consult. It said that it will um, uh, do this in early 2019, uh, sorry, early 2020. So in in sort of January, February time before final recommendations in March. Well, that kind of looks like putting the... uh, um, the cart before the horse, really, because how how can you know um, what's what you know what to say if you don't know what the final recommendations are? So there's some there's some concerns about the the transparency, speed at which it's going, and the um uh, the potential uh, gap in um, in meaningful c- consultation.
0: Yeah, no, it's sort of it's sort of slightly concerning that the the idea that the clinicians in in an emergency department would ever sort of prioritize one patient's care over another, over a more deserving case just to come in under some target, to come in at like three minutes, 58 rather than, if if someone genuinely had higher need, then you would hope and expect that they would always see the person high need. I mean, that's, that's what triage is. That's what they, that's what they do. So, I mean, the, the four hour target I've had, hospital chief Executive say it's a very neat way of uh, of showing where the pressure is in the showing the health of the, actually of the whole urgent care system from from the discharge out to care homes or home through the the effectiveness of the flow through a hospital to the effectiveness of the system's uh, kind of preparations for avoiding unnecessary attendances. So anyway, it'll be interesting to see where that one ends up, but certainly... <clears throat> Uh, the, the fundamentals of it around kind of the, the inputs and, and outputs like what we have in terms of workforce uh there everyone agrees it's 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 roughly 100,000 vacancies yes, that's nationally right. and, and 40,000 nurse vacancies yeah about
1: 42,000 42, nurse, nurse vacancies although we, it's it's actually very difficult to accurately measure how many vacancies there are in the NHS um as it's something that is counted by job adverts posted on the nhs jobs jobs website that's how they um, work out yeah. I, I
0: just figure like given the sort of the centrality of that as a factor kind of um should we be expecting have we seen much in the way of i mean we're in the middle of a, a general election we're at the beginning of a general election campaign uh have we seen or should we expect to see much in the way of kind of workforce policy being put Front and center in people's NHS offer.
1: Mm, well, as of yet, I haven't seen an awful lot um, about the workforce, um, which is perhaps disappointing, um, particularly considering some of the some of the contents in this letter actually, and and the real concerns there are about a workforce deficit um, and the impact that will have on performance. Um, so, I think. Um, So far, we've seen some um, quite kind of big announceables um, from the Conservative Party. And um, well, such as new equipment, scanners, Boris Johnson's been doing an awful lot of hospital hospital visits. Um, But um, in terms of what Labour's putting out, I think there's been a focus on the NHS is not up for sale. That was something that Corbyn really honed in on his very first election speech um there wasn't any mention of workforce um and although earlier this week um labor did put out um some fois they'd done on the number of operations that have been cancelled and of course staff shortages um and poor equipment I think were were the main reasons for this um so actually I think um I I was quite interested to see how this sort of messaging um, has been cutting through to the public. And it is, you know, it's important to say it's early days in the election campaign. The manifestos haven't been published yet. So, you know, I think perhaps we could expect something on pensions in the, perhaps in the Tory manifesto. It's not necessarily going to be a big vote winner for the general public as from their perspective, you know, doctors are very high earners. So, How's that going to benefit the public? But then I suppose if you if you um, make the point that actually without these doctors, they're going to receive potentially poor care in the NHS. So there's quite a strong relationship that I think people can understand that having to wait longer in A and E because there's no consultant to see you and discharge you. Um, so um, I spoke to Ben Page, who is chief executive of um, Polestar Zipsos Mori, and he made the point that. The public always say the biggest problem in the NHS is that there's not enough money. And um, in terms of the privatisation line, that seems to be quite a strong line that Labour have taken at the moment. He said that people are um, more interested in resources and Labour need to show the relationship between privatisation and less resources in the NHS. He said that people are not as ideological about privatization as labor. They don't always like it, but they accept that sometimes it's necessary. Um, so another interesting point raised in that conversation, actually kind of relating to the international workforce and immigration, um, was the idea of an NHS visa.
0: Because sorry, that is one of the big ways you, you can very quickly address a workforce yeah. shortage. So NHS yeah. trust has been going around the world, like recruiting heavily from India, the Philippines. India and Spain, the Philippines Portugal. are
1: the two biggest countries So we. I think we have over half our international staff. I think are from India and the Philippines. They're a big, big group, especially um, especially doctors um, often from India, nurses from Philippines. There's some of the tr- trends that you can see, um, and um, so yeah. So the two parties, Labour and the Tories, are obviously. Polarized on this issue. Labour has a um, conference commitment to um, keep free movement, so to speak. And the Tories are, you know, we had Priti Patel speaking at the Tory conference saying it's going to end once and for all. And we've seen over, over months um, NHS experts and leaders have been warning that that would be absolutely, it would be absolutely detr- detrimental to the health service, the health and care service, obviously, um, if it social, care workers. social care workers absolutely yeah um if it's made more difficult for them to come and work in the nhs um our shortages could get even worse and as, as you very rightly just said that the only way in the short term to ease workforce pressures and many trusts is international recruitment as it takes uh over five years to grow a doctor and three years for a nurse a nursing degree and you know, further postgraduate education to become more specialists or indeed to work in the community because community nursing, district nursing is a is a real problem area. Over the last nine years, I think we've seen a 42% decrease in um, district nursing,
0: which is huge and can really so block... that's roughly half that workforce that used to be out there. Yeah. Doing that work is just not there anymore.
1: Absolutely. And I think they play a vital role and in- we were talking about flow earlier and getting people out of hospital to home and often that, the blockage in that care package sometimes, you know,
0: that plays a big, big part. So this is maybe why we're having to open more expensive hospital beds to deal with people who maybe don't need to be in hospital because yeah. time and again, the NHS hasn't put uh, community facilities in place. Oh, I wonder how he came to lose 42% of, of district nurses. That's quite scary. Um, th- the parties have different lines, like you say, oh, yeah, on, yeah. The, uh, on the freedom of movement. But yeah. is, isn't that just an EU issue or, or do, they, do they mean more generally on that
1: um so the situation as it sounds is um eu workers have can apply for and many have settled or pre-settled status so they're secure in their their jobs in the uk um i think it's the question remains what will happen in the future so they are there's some consultations going on at the moment um the mac on a refined points visa system um, so
0: that's the, the what's what's the MAC? So sorry, <laughs> that that's a,
1: that's a, um uh migration migration advisory committee.
0: Right, that's which sets policy for.
1: Yeah, so the government's asked them to consult on what a future uh, immigration system could look like, and um, yeah, there are there are concerns that if a salary threshold is set too high um, to be a, a skilled worker allowed to come and work in this country could have disastrous impact on um on workers who are not on the shortage occupation list and for social care workers as well so i think so um yeah so i was talking to um ben page about this idea of um an nhs visa would kind of sounds like it 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 would be a bit similar to the shortage occupation list, but it would just, you know, the shortage occupation list can change. It doesn't it doesn't say the same. Nurses aren't necessarily although I can't imagine them not being on it, but that it's not set in stone that they're always going to be on it. So apparently about six in ten people are supporting an NHS visa, which I think that says quite a lot about the the, the he, he said the pragmatism of the public when it comes to the NHS. Um, I wonder whether politicians will also recognise this.
0: Yeah, that would be an interesting departure people go okay' we're, we're prepared to put behind other bits of our immigration policy because this is the priority and because you know, I think it's important to stress like the 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 pressures on the system that we see couldn't be more related to the hundred thousand vacancies that we have so and if you, if you're proposing to make that worse in any way then that's a a difficult sell um Thanks, James. Thanks, Annabelle, for, for taking us through that. Uh, we're back uh, next week with the next uh, weekly Health Check podcast. Uh, you can you can download that from all of the normal places uh, you get your podcasts from uh, and also from the uk website. Uh, if you've got any uh, things you'd like us to discuss, um, please send them in. Uh, my email is clover at wilmingtonhealthcare.com. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks very much.